Hi, this is Lisa Greer, author of Philanthropy Revolution, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Lisa Greer. Lisa is an entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist who's managed her family's giving for the last decade. She's served on dozens of boards and commissions, including the Beverly Hills Cultural Heritage Commission, the International Board of New Israel Fund, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and the Los Angeles District Attorney Crime Prevention Foundation. She also founded two healthcare-related companies and a strategic advisory firm specializing in digital media and entertainment. As a Hollywood studio exec, she managed the online businesses at NBC and Universal while also launching pioneering ventures into music webcasting. She's the mother of five and lives with her husband, Joshua, and their two youngest children in Los Angeles. Lisa's here to talk about her book, Philanthropy Revolution, How to Inspire Donors, Build Relationships, and Make a Difference. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Lisa, it's great to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? When I was uh, probably 11 or 12 years old, something like that, my father said to me, who was very old school, madman time period, he said to me uh, in a room with a lot of friends over, they were having a party at the house, a cocktail party. And he said, you know, too bad you were, too bad you're a girl, you would have made a great attorney. And from then on, I think he put me on the trajectory, which was to say, wait a minute, watch, I can do, I, that's not me. I, it's none of this too bad you're a girl stuff. So I was introduced to a number of different people. And also I, I was, I think I was looking out for successful women and women who had bucked that saying. And so one of them was actually, I'd say probably the most impressive one was that I looked up to was Eleanor Roosevelt, who obviously was not around when I was growing up, but I used to read uh, a lot about her and the idea that she was a woman in her own, that she did a lot of things to change the world, a lot of good. And she, there, nobody was going to tell her, you can't do this because you were born a woman. When you were sharing that with me, I was thinking about Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, that no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. She's very much someone who said, be the guardian of your own mind so that others don't have access to it unless you give them permission. That's right. That's right. And that's all strength and fierceness and all of those good things. So I think she was a great model or the memory or knowing about her um, as an icon in my past. So as you studied her early on through your teen years, can you remember a time maybe in your early in your career or in college when you were about to make a decision and some of her advice came to you and lent you strength to make your decision or helped you choose and decide something that was actually what you wanted, not what other people wanted for you? So lots of times during when I was in early career, mid-career, et cetera, I I felt beaten down. And I think over and over again, I thought of that quote that you just mentioned, because I, and I, it really became almost a mantra to me to get through those situations when somebody said, for example, oh, you only got that job because you slept with your boss, things like that. I would just, my, my back, I would back myself up in feeling, I, I, instead of feeling angry, I would feel like, wait a minute, nobody can do this. I, I have to agree to feel secondary or to feel badly. I'm just not going to. So I did a lot of that. Isn't it great to have Eleanor Roosevelt in your corner? I wish I met her. It would have been really wonderful, but yes. I would certainly agree that she puts her thoughts out there. She shared her experiences to be that influence 
as a legacy. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I was just in the last couple of weeks appointed to the California Commission of the Status on the Status of Women and Girls in the state of California. And I was talking to somebody to find out a little bit of history of that organization and that most states have a commission on the status of women and girls. Many cities do. And I talked to someone who's been a part of that for many years. And guess who founded idea of commission on the status of women and girls? No kidding. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's fabulous. I didn't know that. I was happy to happy to find that out. That was a surprise, a nice surprise. I'm sure with your ambition and talent and education, you could have chosen many different career paths. How did you get involved in philanthropy? I started off not being really part of a family that did a lot of philanthropy. Not not that they were selfish. We just didn't have a lot of means beyond a little bit. It would be it, I wouldn't call us philanthropists, even though they would donate here and there. But it wasn't really a, a lot. They weren't regular donors to anything in particular. It would be more local, like Pete School and that kind of thing. So Girl Scouts, they were very involved and was involved in. So I really didn't grow up with that. And then when I got to college, I found out that there were a lot of people who had been. That was just part of their life. Is that they had always been involved in these big events and galas. I hadn't been to those kinds of things. And in what school? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. At UCLA. And I, it was obviously, I think for most people going to a big college, if you've been to a big college, it's uh, to a big college. It, it's definitely mind opening and eye opening and for a whole bunch of different reasons. So, so I started realizing that I started learning more about nonprofits. I worked uh, for the university for a while in the division that was putting on their performing arts events. And so learned a little bit about that, learned about nonprofits because all of the performing arts groups who would come were nonprofits. And it was really interesting. And I, I also felt like it was a way of taking, this sounds silly, but a way of taking kindness and authenticity and merging that with business. And that just was what kind of made me tick. So I did a lot of different things for many years, but was very interested in, in this idea. I got involved in some political fundraising work, not heavy duty, just learning. And then about 10 years ago, my husband and I were fortunate enough to be able to quit our jobs. And I sold my company, which was a fertility space, and my husband went public. And we left and decided that we were going to chill for a little bit. We'd always been working since both of us had been 13 or 14 years old. And we said, let's see what happens. And we figured it would take about three months before we went crazy and had to go find some sort of job. And so we, we tried a lot of different things. We were serial entrepreneurs, and I also had a lot of corporate experience. And we started getting involved in, because of the financial change to our lives, we said, okay, what are we going to do with this money? Not, are we going to go buy jewelry, but who were the first people we should give this? So my husband and I both, I, I decided that we would both choose one place. And this was about two weeks before our company went public. And the first, so what I said to him is, let's each find something that's really meaningful so we can make a meaningful gift. Now, I didn't know what a meaningful gift even meant. I just knew it, it probably meant a lot of money. You could aspire to it, looking to make a difference and help them get to a goal or reach a benchmark they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Thank you. That's exactly right. And so uh, I was involved in our synagogue, and I was about to become president of the synagogue. We'd been involved there for a few years, and they had a capital campaign going on. So they were trying to, they were restoring their sanctuary and had a wonderful architect who was working on it. And it, it was a big program, but they were about a million dollars short of finishing it, of completing it. They'd already started the construction and all of that, but they needed a million dollars so that they would get to that point. And I, so I was aware of that, obviously, I'm, I'm the incoming president. And I decided what I really wanted 
help them do that. I now have the means where I can give them that last bit of money and I can uh, make a difference and they won't have to worry about it anymore. And of course, I won't have to worry about it as president, theoretically. And it was, it, and it's meaningful. It also, I remember as a, as a young girl, my father taking me to a synagogue that his father had belonged to. So my grandfather, who I never met, showing me a plaque with his name on it. And he was very proud of that. And my dad died when I was in my 20s. And I thought, you know what? My dad would be really proud of something like this. So our name, even though I didn't want to be splashy about it, our name is on the building. And I are on the, a part of the building. And I, I felt a little strange about that. But my kids, I had very young kids at that point. They were about five, my youngest. And they're twins. And every day when they would be going to school or some sort of event, they were proud walking in saying, hey, we were able to do this and help this organization. I thought that was really cool. So we decided to do that. My husband had been suffered from Crohn's disease since he's been about 11 or 12 years old. And he it's really been debilitating. He's had many surgeries, over a dozen surgeries. At one point, couldn't go to school for almost a year, all sorts of things like that. And he said, I want to make sure that kids, that, that there's no children who have to go through what I went through. I want to make sure that there's a either a, a cure for Crohn's disease or something that allows people to decide if somebody is likely to have that there's a genetic component to it. And we can somehow change that so that people, there don't have to be any, there, there doesn't have to be anybody else who is born into having Crohn's disease genetically predisposed. Let me jump in. For people who are wondering or not familiar with it, Crohn's disease is a bowel disease that can be really painful for young children when they experience these symptoms. Being Having to step out of class and be absent with all sorts of, of problems like that, is it can not only be physically painful, but it's also really emotionally troublesome. Isn't that part of what your husband was experiencing and relating to? Yes. And in fact, his doctor is one of the few, if not the only doctors, who's a gastroenterologist and went back to school because he was seeing all these young people with Crohn's disease, which is typically when it sets in. He went back to school and got a degree in psychiatry as well for exactly that reason, because it is incredibly demoralizing for people. And about half of Crohn's patients end up really being loners and sitting in an apartment by themselves, having you know no social life. And then the other half say, I'm not going to be pulled down to that. I'm going to be successful. And they end up being healthy, wonderful, active. And so my husband decided he, wa- he wanted to be in that second group. And he, but he also wanted to see if there was a way of making it not exist anymore. And it was the beginning of personalized medicine was really starting to take off then. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to fund an endowment, actually a chair at our hospital, because we found out that the local hospital where my husband had had most of his surgery actually had this amazing guy who had just joined them from England, who was focusing specifically on the genetic component of the genetic piece of Crohn's disease. And was that actually where he had a surgery as a child? Yes, not as a child. He had his first major surgery when he was about 20, and it was in Los Angeles. He's from Toronto, but he did come to LA. Uh, He had relatives here, and this is where he had all of his surgeries. He was in the hospital and other things before that, but not a major surgery. So he's had quite a few of them. So it was just, we, it, it just was what we call it, it in Hebrew, it's called beshert. It was serendipity that this guy literally had started like a couple of months before. We had no way of knowing that. We thought we might have to go to a different university hospital somewhere else in the country who would be doing that research. But here was this guy. He was just there. Uh, his name is Dr. Dermot McGovern, and he's amazing. And there's a little bit about him in my book as well. And from that money that we gave, we uh, 
found that today there is a research lab that has been making all sorts of impact on this issue about Crohn's disease and personalized medicine. He's got 25 people in the lab right now, full-time people from nothing. And it's really wonderful to know that we had a big piece of that, a big part of that. And so it's quite an honor. That's terrific because you could make so many advances in some sort of medical donations and support that way. And where there hasn't been a lot of support and you gather the right team together, you can make a lot of advances that have a practical difference in people's lives through surgery, through different treatments, through diet and discovery, maybe with genetic testing. All of these things are possible with the right financial support. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book is that getting people to donate money isn't the only difficulty in fundraising for nonprofits. Can you talk about what it was like? Because it wasn't as simple as you expected either, trying to get people to step up and donate. So what happened is when we, we gave that the amount to the hospital, we decided we identified this person, we decided we wanted to get the money. It took seven months for them to accept our money because we weren't going through it in the normal way that fundraisers work, which is they identify people, this small group, they then pick out who the people are they want to pitch to, they then have what they call an ask, they have a meeting, they do a whole big thing. And we bucked that trend, we basically, that system, and said, we're just going to call you and say, we would like to give you money for... And they were unprepared for that. Completely unprepared for that. And unfortunately, fortunately, Cedar sinai that hospital, made this part of their onboarding program for all of their development professionals. They have to hear the story so they don't do that same thing. But I am. it's unfortunate to say that many other nonprofits are still on that old page where I think if I called them today from nowhere and said, I'm whatever. You, you might call them in November and say, hi, I have a, a large donation I'd like to make. Who can I um, sit down and talk to to talk about how I'd like to see it spent and dedicate these funds? And they'd say, oh, our fundraising dinner's in May. Why don't you show up to that? That's just bizarre. Right. Or they might say, oh, we'll have to have somebody call you back. Or, or you'll need to talk to our development person. And I was so green, I didn't even know that development meant fundraiser. But they would actually send me to somebody's voicemail. And I, this has actually happened to me before. And I, I just find it appalling. And just you would think that they would say, oh, my gosh, this is the most wonderful thing ever. You would think that any employee of that organization getting a phone call like that would be thrilled. But it doesn't happen that way all the time. And I find that just shocking. Let's call this out to everyone listening. Whatever charity or nonprofit that you're a part of, ask the question of the executive director or the leader and say, do you have a process in place if anyone in your organization who answers the phone speaks to someone who wants to give a gift, do they know what to say? Do they know what to do? Do they know what the next steps are? Because you don't want to turn off people like this because it is, it's serendipity contacting you and you want to be prepared for that. It's something that can be anticipated even today. Yep. Yeah. And absolutely brilliant advice. And I, I just hope that, and that's really why I wrote the book and why I've gotten so involved in philanthropy is because I recognized those things and thought they were ludicrous and said, wait a minute, these are all these nice organizations doing wonderful, that have wonderful missions and they think they're doing a great job. In many cases they are, but they could do so much better if they changed the way that they do, if they were much more open to everybody. If they, for example, one of, one of my big pet peeves is that in most organizations, the volunteers, which are obviously very important to almost all organizations, 
the volunteers are kept completely separate from the donors. And in fact, the donors are kept separate. The big donors are kept separate from the little donors. And they're not supposed to be talking to each other, which I, I just don't know who made that up. I think it's a crazy rule, but it is the way it works. And so if some, the idea of somebody become, who's a volunteer saying, I would now like to talk to you about being on your board blows people's minds. And so I'm trying to throw that back to people in the development world and say, do you see how ludicrous this is? This is this needs to change. One of the things that, and I don't mean to make light of the pandemic lockdown in any way, shape or form, but it, if you take the right perspective, it does give us opportunities to accelerate cultural change on issues like this. Can you talk about an example of an organization that has embraced this and said, look, this has completely thrown our fundraising gala our event schedule out the window. So what do you do next? And what was necessary for them in order to make that change? So there's all sorts of different wonderful things that have happened because of this sort of, I think, existential threat that we've been through and that we're going through, as well as just the idea that everything feels different. Time feels different. Money is different. It's, everything's different. And the thing about the gala, which became a big deal in the last, whatever, a couple of decades, Yes, people, most organizations were panicked about it and didn't know what to do, couldn't imagine that they would be able to raise that money. Like, where's the money? Like, basically, they were thinking that if we can't have a gala in the way that we're used to having galas, then we can't have a gala. I mean, let's just take a step back. Lisa, a lot of people don't realize that organizations base maybe 80% of their operating funds around a single event each year. Isn't that what you found? I mean, it depends on the organization, but it's definitely a big piece. It, 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 it could just not having that, wiping it off the map as an event or their annual fund drive are the two big things. Just taking that off the map, it could just kill the organization. So people panicked. I would say in the first, within two weeks, I heard a lot of organizations panicking. They just didn't know what they were going to do. And as time went on, they started realizing that, wait a minute, maybe we can actually make this work. And it was absolutely fascinating. Two really interesting things happened. One is that, well, a whole bunch of interesting things happened, but there's people started saying, what if we do it online? We're going to have to decrease the amount of money that our goal is. There's no way we can do this. Or how does that work? And we don't know about technology and production costs. But there was another silver lining that a lot of people in the world learned more about technology than they did a year ago. But they, this, this really interesting man named Richard Weitz, who is a, a big agent in Hollywood, said, you know what? He recognized that there was this issue. This is early, early on. And he created an organization called Quarantunes that you can look up, like quarantine, but Quarantunes. And he brought all of these famous um, people that he knew as part of his agency. And you actually got to be online. You got invited usually to these events by the organization. And they would have the most amazing collection of musicians and actors and all different kinds of people online for maybe a couple of hours. And he, as of about a month ago, I was on a couple of them over the summer and one about a month ago, they've done over 30 of them. And the early ones, uh, one of them was for this hospital that we're involved in, raised $250,000 in a couple of hours. And the latest one, because they kept raising more and more, the one that I was at about a month ago that was for uh, Equity Fights AIDS Broadway Cares, raised over a million dollars in about three hours. It was unbelievable. It was just unbelievable. And that is more than most organizations would ever think of raising at a gala. So he proved that 
you know what, there is another way. And then I think people, maybe it was because of that. I think it might've been largely because of that. And by the way, he, he calls different organizations and he partners them. So he decides, I like this organization. You get to be that person. And it's, it's an amazing thing when people get that phone call. But I think it gave people confidence, a lot of nonprofits confidence that they could do something like a gala, they could do something online and raise money. And the fascinating thing that I have learned, every organization that I've talked to who has done a virtual gala or virtual fundraiser this year has uh, exceeded their goals, every single one. There hasn't been a single one that said, oh my gosh, it was a dud. Nope, it's the most amazing thing. So it, it but without this sort of world change, I don't know that those people would have learned the technology. I don't know that they would have been able to accept that there's an alternative to the rubber chicken dinner. So it's that part of it is a wonderful thing. It really has accelerated a lot of openness to new approaches. Another new idea you talk about in the book is having a shark tank sort of environment for people who run nonprofits to go in and make pitches to people who want to make significant gifts. Can you talk about how that works and maybe share an example of an organization you're familiar with? So there's an organization called 10 by 10 Philanthropy or 10, I think that's what it's called, 10 by 10. It's based in Australia and it is. it was started by a wealth manager who on the side decided that there must be some better way to fundraise. So he created this organization that has had events throughout the world. I think it went from Australia to Asia and then the United States and Europe. And it, it is not, I don't think it's, I don't think they've done a virtual version of it at the moment, but which is fine because of what they do. So it is very much like a shark tank. You walk into an event. The event is, by the way, sponsored by food. There's food and there's wine. And it's very much a younger person's event, even though it could be for older people, but it's very casual in person. You have little groups, a stand, a little table of three different organizations. Each organization gives you their, has their collateral and information and they're smiling on the other side of the table. And you pay to go. And the cost of it is, I forgot what it was. I want to say it's about $100. And what you pay goes directly to the organizations. So when you show up, because the rest of the, the, the food and drink is sponsored, then you show up and they give you tickets for the amount of money that you've donated. So it's $100, you get whatever it is, tickets, maybe it's a $10 donation each and they give you 10 tickets. But they give you these tickets and each of the little booths have a cup kind of or a bottle in front of them. And at the end, you put in tickets of how much you want to give to each of those organizations from your tickets. And the tickets have no value after you leave. So you already know you're going to be giving them to that organization. And you determine who to give them to by the Shark Tank thing that happens where there's a couple of people on a little bit of a panel who interview somebody who is the head of the nonprofit. They usually have some sort of an audio video presentation. And the rest of the people there watch this. We were allowed to ask a couple of questions. And then the next person does their thing and the next person does their thing. So that's like the entertainment. And it's really interesting and fun. And by the way, most people have had something to drink or eat before that, which is also nice. So it's just a social piece. You sit on these very comfortable room chairs, nothing fancy. And it's amazing. And the thing that he does at the end of it is he says, okay, nobody gets to leave this room. You can go and you can put your tickets in the little bowls, wherever, which organizations you liked better. But, and you can also get information on how to work with them in the future. But you cannot leave the room until you, until I have 10 people raise their hands that they will sponsor the next. So it's this pay it forward kind of thing. It's a brilliant model. And he always gets 10 people and he writes down their names and says them publicly. Okay, you're the 10 people who are going to go find 
10 people to invite to the next one, each of you, which brings 100 people at least. You're also going to take care of figuring out the sponsorships and the place. Go live long and prosper, get it done. And they do. And it's a beautiful thing. That's a great atmosphere. And it really allows people to make contributions beyond just the $100 or however much they've donated. When I've been on boards of nonprofits, we've always talked about three things that people can give, their time, their talent, or their treasure. And a lot of times it takes more creativity that is more valuable than just the straight donation of cash, because an event like this really highlights that you have something that can be self-perpetuating if you have that creativity, the structure, and the example behind it. And by the way, to add to what you just said, uh, uh, a woman I've been working with, a new friend of mine in Australia who is a philanthropic advisor there, she says you do time, talent, treasure, and you add ties. And I thought that was really interesting because what I used to bring to people when I didn't have money is I said, hey, I want to get involved with your organization and I can introduce you to these people in the entertainment industry because that's where I was and help you to be successful that way. And that's a really important piece too. So I, I just wanted to add that in. What do members who are already volunteers and board members of nonprofits, what can you help them realize are the opportunities during the pandemic? Maybe one tip for volunteers and one tip for board members. It, this is an opportunity. People are reading more. People are learning how to bake sourdough bread. You can also learn much more in depth about the organizations that you work for. So really take the time to do that. I think that is super, super important. Uh, the other thing is to make sure that the organization realizes that they can still use volunteers in an online world, in a world where we don't have as much physical connection in the short term. And if they're not open to that, that tells you something about that organization. What about board members, people who are in charge of leadership within the organization at the board level? I, I think that board members need to also really research their organization, but also research the world around them. What are the best practices? What's new since I joined this board? What am I not seeing? Who's our competition? One of the questions I ask everybody who I donate to before I donate is, you know, what's, who's your competition, which is a standard business question. And the, the answer I get most often is we don't have any, which is not an acceptable answer. Everybody has some sort of competition. And I think now is a really good time for those board members to say, hey, what's going on around us? What are the new best practices? Who's doing things like us? Who's doing things that are different so that they can answer that question really well about who the competition is and why they're different and why they're, someone should donate. To them. That's really valuable. Lisa, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Yay, absolutely. So at the beginning, I asked you about someone who influenced or inspired you, and you talked about little Eleanor Roosevelt. When you were a teenager, what's a song you really loved? I would say Changes, David Bowie Changes, and which is funny that I'm realizing that now because that's what I'm about. It's all about change. It's not about business change. It's about change in general and facing change. That's really what business is about, isn't it? It's really, I've never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. How do you define success for yourself? Making a difference. That's If I can see that I've made a difference, the more difference I make, the happier I am. So what's the best lesson or advice that you learned? Determination and resilience. Selling cookies does that to you. So yes. What book have you given as a gift more than any other in the last year? The first one is my book, uh, Philanthropy Revolution, of course. The second would be something called The Fox Hunt. It is a fascinating book about uh, a young man interested in, in Yemen who's interested in social justice, civil rights, who goes through all sorts of things to, to be a peacemaker and to survive. And it's a fascinating book. I've given away lots and lots of copies. Mohammed al-Samawi is the uh, author. Lisa, a lot of people want to learn more about 
nonprofits and maybe how they could get involved. Is there an online resource that people could go to see which nonprofits are actually doing what they say their mission is doing and they're being effective stewards of the funds that they are entrusted with? So this is a a little bit of a challenging question because there have been two organizations for a long time named GuideStar and Charity Navigate, but they were really started to give a rating for each organization based on their financials, which is fine, but specifically about their administrative costs, which really doesn't tell you about how they are succeeding in their mission and what kind of impact they're making. There's an organization in Canada who partnered with one of those organizations just recently in the last year and decided to add in some metrics for mission success and for impact. And I don't know that they're really there yet, but they're getting there. And that's really important. Otherwise, I think talking to people on their board, talking to other people who know the organization, reading really about the organization, and the very best thing you can do is call somebody there and ask them questions. And if they don't want to talk to you, regardless of how much money you may or may not want to give, if they don't want to talk to you, go somewhere else. Lisa, you've made so many great contributions to me and all of us listening on my quest for the best today. So I'd like to thank you so much for all that you've shared. Thank you so much, Bill. Lisa, before we say goodbye for now, can you tell us where we can find out more about you and your work online? Sure. You could just go to lisagreer.com. We will point to not only your Lisa Greer website, but all of your social media, as well as links to be able to find out what you're up to and learn more about how to be effective in philanthropy. Lisa Greer, author of Philanthropy Revolution, How to Inspire Donors, Build Relationships, and Make a Difference. I want to thank you so much for joining me today on My Quest for the Best. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode. 